Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That is your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask Barabbas, to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he, hand, then he released Barabbas to them, but he handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around them. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff into his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, they took the staff, and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Christ community. My name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here at the downtown campus. 
and I'm very glad that you decided to join us uh, this morning. I don't know about y'all, but here's what I know is true about myself. I am a huge fan of history. I love learning about the past. I suspect that I enjoy learning about history because I enjoy people. And history is little more than the study of people and their stories over time. And history, it was always my favorite subject in middle school and high school. It's something I studied in college. I love watching the History Channel. Uh, If you'd get on my Netflix history, you would see that it's an odd mix of kind of crime dramas and historical documentaries, so for whatever that's worth. Uh, But I guess you could say that history has been a, a lifelong passion of mine, so it should come as no surprise that when I turned 18, I hopped in my CRV with two of my dearest friends, and we made a long journey to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, the site of one of the most significant battles in our nation's civil war. Has anyone here, has anyone ever been to Gettysburg? Loved Gettysburg. Well, then you know that it's a beautiful place today, right? There's rolling hills. There's kind of a gorgeous countryside. But at one point, a little less than 200 years ago, the fields of Gettysburg were littered with bodies. It was a very, very bloody um, battle in the Civil War, sort of a failed charge. I don't know if you remember this from high school. There was a charge that didn't quite make it. Many, many lives were lost. In fact, today it's, it's home to the Gettysburg National Cemetery. Uh, which President Lincoln famously consecrated with the Gettysburg Address. And so, uh, as you can imagine, I had a wonderful time on my trip. In fact, the photos you've seen on the screen, these were pictures I took when I was there. So thank you. Uh, But my my journey to Gettysburg, it was, was very exciting for me to make the long drive to a place with significance in our nation's history. But here's the problem. I hadn't told my parents I was going on the trip. And I used a credit card that was billed to them to pay for everything. (laughs) And so a few weeks after my glorious Gettysburg vacation, I get a phone call from home that says, Tyler, do do you know anything about these charges from Ohio and Maryland and Pennsylvania? And there in the moment I realized, oops, I had had gone too far, literally and figuratively. I'd taken a thousand mile round trip journey and paid for it all with my parents' money without saying a single word to them. I had gone too far, and there in that moment, on the phone, it caught up with me. It makes me wonder, have you ever had one of those moments when kind of your your choices catch up, when decisions you've made or actions you've taken or, or words you've said, they come back and they stare you right in the face? When you've chosen to go down a certain path, and maybe as you were going, you knew it wasn't necessarily the wisest thing, but still you went, now you're where you are, and it's not where you wanted to be, but hey, I'm here now. Have you ever just gone too far? Maybe in a relationship, or at a job, or at work, perhaps you took a little extra liberty here, or cut some corners there, or said some things you didn't mean over this way. I mean, maybe you had a gut feeling, even as it was going on, that's like, gosh, I know better than this, but still, it feels like it's already too late. It feels like the choice has already been made. I'm swept up in this action, and before you know it, it's happened. Have you ever been there? I mean, I know I have in big ways and in small ways, quite sincerely in ways much more significant and more costly than a road trip to a historical site, I have made my way down roads I had no business traveling. Because I've spent a lot of time studying people and studying history, I can say with certainty that you have too. It's something we all have in common. It's 
part of being human. In big ways and small ways, we all go too far. And so this morning, we see this human reality explored and embodied in the historical account that Matthew presents to us. In Matthew 27, we encounter a particular narrative in which everyone has gone too far. The religious leaders have gone too far. Pilate has gone too far. Judas has gone too far. And their story should cause us to pause. And their story should prompt us to reflect because every human needs to know the answer to this question. What do you do when you've gone too far? What do you do? when you've gone too far. And I believe this morning's text has much to say to us as we seek an answer to that question. In fact, I believe that as we examine together what Matthew has written for us here, we'll be able to identify three distinct responses that are so common. They just rise up within us naturally. Three distinct responses to taking things too far and they're embodied by the three main figures in this morning's text. And my prayer is that as we engage their stories, we'll remember our stories. I want us to see ourselves in this narrative because I'm hopeful that as we take this time together to explore God's word, each of us will see with new clarity, sure, ways we've made mistakes in this past, but more importantly, ways we can live differently going forward. That's what I'm trusting God for this morning. So if you haven't already, would you join me in Matthew 27? We'll begin in verse 1. Matthew 27, verse 1. It's on page 833 of our community Bibles. The text says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Let's pause there for a moment. In these opening verses of Matthew 27, we're introduced to three main figures, the chief priests and elders, so the religious leaders, Pilate, the governor, and Judas. And Matthew wants us to see that all three of these figures play a part in putting Jesus on the cross. They're all implicated in Christ's execution. All three are caught up in the conspiracy to execute an innocent man. And here in Matthew 27, we gain a glimpse into their thinking and their actions as they're complicit in this task. The religious leaders, Pilate and Judas, those are our three figures this morning that embody the three distinct responses we often exhibit when we take things too far. And so we're going to look at them one by one, and we're going to start with the religious leaders, the chief priests and the elders. So if you were here last week, you might remember that the chief priests and elders, they have Jesus arrested at night, and then he's taken away to the chief priest's house where they hold kind of like an all-night court session condemning Jesus on religious charges. This is what Gabe spoke about last week. So they twist some of Jesus' words here, they manipulate things he said there, and they find Jesus guilty of blasphemy, which is a religious charge. Now they have to get Jesus guilty on a Roman charge because a religious charge is not enough to have someone executed. So he's guilty in kind of the court they hosted at night, right? But they've got to get him proven guilty in a Roman court. And so they gather and they start to conspire amongst themselves. How can we, how can we make this happen? What kind of charge could we present to a Roman governor that that person would find significant enough to warrant death? And so they're there conspiring, scheming, planning. How are we going to work this out? When Judas shows up at the chief priest's house and he walks in the betrayer and he's having uh, maybe a little seller's remorse. He sees the way the Pharisees have condemned Jesus. He realizes they're getting ready to put Jesus to death. And so he shows up at the house of the high priest and he says, hey, I, I want to give this money back. 
Let's undo this deal. I was wrong. I mean, this, how bold is this confession from Judas? I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Right? Can't we make this go away? Can't we undo this deal? And the religious leaders, they're just callous to his, to his cry for help. They say, man, what is that to us? In other words, why should we care? It's too late. It's over. It's done. Get over it, man. You can't take it back. And so in sad desperation, Judas takes the money that they've given him, and he throws it on the ground, and he runs away. And then Matthew adds a little more detail. And, and honestly, it's almost comical if it didn't hit too close to home. Don't miss it. Matthew 27, verse 6, we're told that the religious leaders picked up Judas's money from the ground. They gather it all together. But then they say to themselves, hey, it's not lawful to put these coins in the treasury since they are blood money. I want you to imagine this church. They're there conspiring on how to put an innocent man to death. His betrayer comes up. He throws the money. They gather it up and they say, hey, 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 this money, this money that we gave Judas to buy Jesus so we could kill him, it's blood money now. It's not lawful for us to put that in the offering box. You see, even as they're conspiring amongst themselves how they might frame Jesus, they nevertheless bolster their own sense of self-righteousness by recalling and remembering and abiding by a minute law related to tithing. Quite honestly, I think this is a perfect example of what Jesus accused the religious leaders of doing in Matthew 23 when he said that they strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You remember that sermon? This idea of a gnat, small little thing, right? You're straining out, you're parsing minutia, you're all about these small details. While you're swallowing a camel, a whole big wrong thing is happening, but you're focused on something small and inconsequential. And as I said, this behavior would be so comical if it wasn't remarkably common. In fact, I'm tempted to laugh at the religious leaders until I think of times that I've done very similar things. Made sure to use very polite language even as I gossip about a coworker. Made sure to follow the speed limit even as I'm going someplace I shouldn't be going, right? Now to be clear, there's nothing wrong per se about following the rules or caring about the rules. In fact, there's a lot of trouble in life that can be avoided by embracing some of the good principles and rules that God's given us in his word. However, the problem arises when we think that our rule keeping and rule following might actually make us good or at least good enough in God's eyes. That's when the problem starts. Our souls are in danger when we come to believe that simply following the rules will somehow transform our hearts and put us in right relationship with God because that's just not how it works. Our hearts, they're, they're selfish and sinful, and they don't just need to be tweaked or tempered by rule following. They need to be transformed altogether by some greater power. But as soon as we settle on merely keeping the rules... As soon as we decide this is what my spiritual life is going to look like, I'm going to become an expert at keeping even the smallest rules, what happens is that our selfish hearts take over and instead we become better at bending and twisting and reinterpreting rules so that we can tell ourselves we're in constant compliance with the rules. That is just how it goes. I have kind of a funny story that illustrates this point. Some of you have heard the full version, and I'd love to tell it another time, but uh, a few years ago, uh, I was carjacked by a drug dealer and taken around the south side of Fort Wayne, Indiana while I was home visiting my parents. Uh, it really, it's quite the story uh, for another time. There were many things that happened in this nearly three and a half hour journey, but one of the moments, one of the episodes uh, stands out. 
So just a little context, I'm there in the car, carjacker's next to me, we're driving around and he's kind of using me as a chauffeur while he buys drugs from various you know, houses in Fort Wayne or something. They guessed that he was maybe from Detroit or Indian, was there ripping off a different ring. But using me as a chauffeur is we buy drugs around the south side of Fort Wayne. And as this process is going on, he would get you know, some kind of new product, he had his pipe there with him, and he would test what, whatever had come his way, right? And so we've done a couple of these runs already. Uh, he grabs another, you know, gets this fresh stuff, puts it in his pipe, takes a hit, then blows some smoke out. And what happens next was hilarious. The smoke accidentally blows into my face. And I promise you this, he looks over, he's like, man, I'm sorry. Even in the midst of the carjacking, right? And so think about this for a bit. I'm there for three hours driving around terrified, thinking this is it, you know, take the car. I don't want the car. We're going through the whole process together. But in that moment, a small rule about being polite and kind takes over. And someone who's in the midst of doing what I'd say is a bigger wrong apologizes for a little smoke getting in my face. In church... <laughs> It's not just in that dramatic example. This is me and you in our everyday life. We tell ourselves this, I keep this rule. I keep that rule. I'm polite. I'm kind. I say the right thing. I look the right way. I must be doing just fine, even as our hearts remain the same and they aren't becoming anything more like Christ. Hear this warning, church. Don't underestimate your ability to justify your own actions. We're all pros at it. And the chief priests and elders, the premier religious authorities of the day, here in this text, as they're plotting how to kill Jesus, they think about how they're simultaneously going to adhere to some small law as if that somehow justifies them or makes them good people. But it doesn't just stop with their refusal to put Judas's money in the offering box. Matthew writes that the religious leaders, they shackle Jesus and take him to Pilate, and there they actually present their fabricated case. Now, Pilate's a very smart man. He's been highly educated in Roman schools, and he can see straight through their deception. It says in verse 18 that Pilate knew it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up to him. So he sees right through their schemes. And so Pilate, sensing that Jesus is innocent, sensing that this is really about something else, maybe some jealousy in the religious leaders, but there's nothing wrong with this guy, he decides he's going to make an offer to the assembled crowds that they won't be able to refuse. You see, it was custom during the Feast of Passover, which is happening in Jerusalem, for the Roman governor to release one prisoner each year. And so Pilate decides he'll make the religious leaders and crowds an offer that he'll release Barabbas to them. Barabbas, who had a mile-long rap sheet of violent crime, he says, all right, you're all worked up now. You think you want this Jesus guy killed. I know what I'll do. Hey, here's an offer. I'm going to release the yearly prisoner. Do you want Jesus released or Barabbas? Again, this long, long rap sheet. Everyone knows the story of Barabbas, this infamous criminal. You choose. And Pilate sincerely believes that the frenzied crowd will come to their senses when presented with such a stark choice. They're like, man, you're right, we're mad at Jesus now, but that Barabbas guy, we know what he's like. Uh, you should keep, keep and kill Barabbas, and then Jesus, sure, beat him and release. That sounds right. Pilate's convinced that will be the solution, but that's not what happens. Notice in verse 20, the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The religious authorities, the spiritual elite, the pastors and the elders, the people who come to church every Sunday, they actively persuade the crowds to advocate for Jesus' execution. You know, it's been said that misery loves company. 
Well, so does conspiracy, and so does our sin. And the Pharisees aren't just content with condemning Jesus themselves. They want to enlist the help of others, bringing them in so that they can, again, bolster themselves and feel better about what they're doing. So they gather a crowd and they encourage them to join in as they condemn an innocent man to die. Now, I know we'd never do anything like that, right? We'd never twist arms or twist logic to bring others along to our own will. Or would we? I mean, the the sad fact is that in our age of polarization and everything becoming so politicized, uh, kind of pick your favorite news source and argue on social media, we, we easily and often listen simply to the voices of those who agree with us. And if anyone threatens our thinking... Uh, It's just easy to unfriend or change the channel or switch churches. We become skilled at building echo chambers around ourselves so that we can constantly convince ourselves that we're right. And in those moments when we happen to face opposition, we've also gotten better at gathering only evidence that supports our case. Not interested in the truth, not interested in seeing if we're wrong, interested in proving our point. Friends, the religious leaders embody a distinct human response that rears its ugly head when we've taken things too far. And the response is this, uh, they defend. They dig in and they defend at all costs. They defend. They'll do whatever it takes to convince themselves and convince others that their course of action is correct. By justifying themselves through rule-keeping and by gathering the consensus of those around them, that's as if they're trying to convince themselves and others that, hey, it's not what it seems. It's not what it seems. I know it looks like we're trying to get an innocent man killed, but trust us. We're good people who keep the rules, and everyone else here agrees with us that this is right. Church, a defensive heart is a dangerous heart. So what do you do when you've gone too far? Do you defend Do you dig in? Do you enlist others to your cause? Is this your mode of operation when you've taken things too far and you find yourself caught? This is the first response we see modeled in this morning's text. It's modeled by the religious leaders. It's defense. The second is embodied by Pilate, the governor. Let's let's turn our attention to him now. Now, Pilate is fascinating to me. Because I think church people have done a very poor job of presenting Pilate as if he's some kind of like flimsy leader who's easily swayed by a public opinion poll. That, that could not be farther from the truth. In fact, uh, there's no way Pilate would have risen to the level he was, a Roman governor of an occupied prom- province, if he wasn't ruthless and confident with authority. Uh, data suggests that Pilate was likely a retired army general. And if you know anything about Roman armies, they're not afraid of blood. Uh, He was no stranger to ordering massacre. In fact, the ancient historians Josephus and Philo say that once upon a time in ancient Judea, there was a protest unfolding. And so Pilate didn't want this anti-Roman protest. And so he sent out some soldiers disguised as civilians among the protesters. And so they find their places and they spread out. And then at his signal, all the soldiers reveal who they are and they slaughter the entire protest crowd. I mean, that's the kind of leader that Pilate is. He's no pushover, and he's smart. I mean, as we've said already, he can see through the religious leader's motivation. He can tell they're envious of Jesus, and he's also able to tell that there's something special about Jesus, something unique. We see this in verses 13 and 14. Then Pilate said to Jesus, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he, Jesus, gave Pilate no answer. 
not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Again, Pilate has been schooled in the finest Roman thought. He respects Jesus' stoic response to false allegations. That would have been a virtue that, I mean, really stood out to Pilate. So he's impressed by Jesus, which is why I think a little later, Pilate actually advocates on Jesus' behalf. He says, why? What evil has this man done? What you've got to get in your mind. This is so crazy for a Roman governor to do. Jewish peasant life is as cheap as can be to Pilate. But he does something unique. He advocates on Jesus' behalf. Why? What has this man done? But the crowds just keep crying out, let him be crucified. And so Pilate, the shrewd Roman governor, Pilate, the wise leader, Pilate, the Roman authority charged with keeping peace in Judea, he says, okay, never cared about peasant life before. I'm not going to start now. This is what you want? Fine. Let him be crucified. But because Pilate knows there's something special about Jesus, he does something else that's unique. So it's unique of him to advocate on behalf of a prisoner. He would never do that. It's also unique of him, then, the text says, to take water and wash his hands before the crowd and say, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. I mean, how much blood had Pilate ordered been spilled before in his life? But he washes his hands in this case, and he says, you know what? In this case, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. Even though my name will sign the death warrant, even though I'm the judge with absolute power here, even I'm the one who could give any order I want, I'm in control as a Roman governor. It's not my fault. I'm sending Jesus to crucifixion, sure, but I don't really want to. And it's your fault. It's not mine. I'm showing you this by washing my hands. Now, church, we may get defensive from time to time. That's okay. But we'd never do anything like this, right? I mean, if I'm being honest, I... I'm a lot like Pilate. I'm a master at avoiding responsibility. That's what he models here. Uh, Maybe you see it in yourself as well. There's two main ways we go about this. The first is blame, and it's the most obvious. We look at a mess we've created or a problem we've caused or a harm we've done against others, and then we look at someone else whose fault it is, right? It's, It's my parents. They screwed me up. You know, it's my partner, it's a spouse, my kids, they made me so angry, my, my boss just doesn't get it, my friends are the worst, the crazy driver going 10 miles under in the left lane, that set me off for the whole day, I can't be responsible, right? We look for others to blame, and it's one way we re- avoid responsibility, it's a very common way, but there's another way we do it too, and the second is a little more subtle, and here's what it is, it's kind of this passivity, we can call it. We embrace passivity. I think it's what Pilate does brilliantly here. He tells himself, you know what, I'm not going to put any nails in Jesus' hands myself. And I'm not a soldier. I'm not going to carry him away. I I don't have a real active part in this. I have more of a passive role. And you know what, I'm just going to let things go on as they would. This is what the crowd wants anyway. It would probably happen anyway. They'd grab Jesus and kill him themselves. You know what, I'm just going to, I'm not going to get in the way. I'm not going to do anything active for it. I won't be out there myself killing him. I'm on record saying I don't want him to be killed, but I'm just, I'm just not going to get in the way. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I'm getting better at identifying sins I actively commit and confessing them. That's a discipline that's growing in my life. But I've, I am so poor when there's things I should have done but didn't do. What theologians call sins of omission, times there were things we didn't do, stuff. I'm so poor at identifying those recognizing those and repenting. But those are still huge errors nonetheless. I mean, think about it this way. I'm convinced it's not just the bully at the school who's guilty. It's all those who stand by and say nothing. 
right? In other words, silence can be just as sinful as speech. In further words, it's not just our action, but our inaction that can be the problem. There's a little verse in the book of James that says it well. Whoever knows the right thing to do but fails to do it, for him it is sin. When I know what's right but I say, hey, not today, hey, not my problem, hey, I I don't want to get involved in this, I don't want to get in the way of that. When I do that, I make a grave error. So let me ask you, church, if, if the religious leaders display the response of defensiveness, Pilate shows, it what it shows us what it looks like to deflect. That's the response he models. So when you've gone too far, do you deflect? Who do you blame? What's your excuse for the good deeds you've left undone? I mean, the truth is a deflecting heart is a dangerous heart. What do you do when you've gone too far? Do you deflect responsibility and place the blame in others? The religious leaders demonstrate what it means to defend. Pilate embodies what it means to deflect. But now we turn to our final figure, Judas, who is overwhelmed with sorrow and guilt when he realizes he's taken things too far. See, Judas shows up at the high priest's house and he says, I'm sorry, I've sinned against innocent blood. Can't we undo this? I want a refund. Let's make it right. He wants to reverse so badly the terrible deal that he's made, but he can't. The religious leaders are unsympathetic. They tell him it's too late, it's over. And so Judas, seeing that he's gone too far and feeling great despair at the fact that he can't fix it, he can't solve it, he can't negotiate out of it, there's no defense for what he's done, there's no one else to blame, feeling this immense weight, Judas decides to take his own life, which is the epitome of despair. And I want to say this this morning, if you feel like you're in a spot like Judas, if you feel like you're in the grips of despair, whether it be despair in this case from something you've done or whether it's despair from just another source entirely, right? This is not the only way despair comes about. But if you feel like you're in despair this morning, if that's you, can I encourage you to say something to someone today? Uh, This church is a safe place to say that things aren't all right. And trust me, I know it's very easy to come in here and it's clean, and it's nice, and a lot of us shower, and it looks real put together when you get here, right? And so it would be easy to assume that everyone else has stuff going on just fine, and I must be unique or alone or just some kind of extra, there's something wrong with me, and that's why I'm in despair. Can I just tell you that could not be farther from the truth. And one of the unique privileges of my role as a pastor is to know the various stories of folks here, and in this room with you today are other folks that are in the midst of a devastating experience, and other folks that have been in a devastating experience. And there's a lot of us, too, at the same time that would love to walk beside you and help you in any way that we can. So hear it from me. We love you. We're glad you're part of this family. And we'd love to take whatever steps with you that it takes. So if that's you, if you're in the middle of despair for any reason this morning, please say something. Or if saying something feels like too much, you can certainly write something on a prayer card and put it in that prayer box over there. And if you leave it, especially leave a number, an email or something, and Gabe and I will follow right up with that. But that has to be said, church, because despair is real. And I feel for Judas in this moment. I mean, even though he betrayed Jesus, I feel as I read this text, my heart go out to him because who hasn't been in that spot where it feels like there's no one to blame and I'm ruined it all and it's never getting any better and felt that spiral of despair. And in fact, that's how despair works, isn't it? It tends to happen in sort of this cyclical nature. We do something we regret, 
And so then we feel a little despair, but then because we're in despair, we do another thing that's not the wisest, but we're in despair. And then just the cycle perpetuates of something bad that we regret. I'm sad about it, so I do another thing I regret, and I get more and more despair. I mean, despair perpetuates despair. And it's so easy to get caught up in that cycle, especially when it's despair resulting from taking things too far, when we've blown it and think it's all over. Despair says it's never getting any better. And in Matthew 27, we see that response embodied in Judas. And it's the last of these three distinctly human responses that I think are modeled in this morning's text. Defend, deflect, despair. These are the responses that come so easily to us when we've gone too far, when we've said something we shouldn't have said or done something we shouldn't have done. Defend, deflect, despair. But the problem is these are all bad options, aren't they? Because defending yourself doesn't change yourself. It just keeps you stuck in bad habits. And deflecting responsibility usually just causes you to become more bitter and cynical towards the folks you blame. And despair, it, it can be crippling. It robs us of motivation and drags us deeper and deeper into sadness. Deflend, defend, deflect, despair, they're all bad options which is why Jesus didn't stop the religious leaders or stop Pilate or stop Judas as they sent him to his death. It's why Jesus didn't speak up when the Pharisees accused him or ask Pilate to come to his defense or tell Judas, hey, bro, I know what you're up to. Jesus didn't resist the unjust actions of those who sent him to his death because he knew that his death was the only thing that could free humanity from these three bad options. That's the brilliant irony at the heart of this morning's story that the religious leaders and Pilate and Judas, even as they're facilitating Jesus' murder, are nevertheless simultaneously contributing to the death that would make possible a new way of responding for all humanity. Right? Even as they took steps that took things too far, they were taking part in a divine rescue mission to save humanity from the responses of despair and deflecting and defending and instead releasing us to something new and something better. Through his death, Jesus came to provide a better option. He came to make a better way. He came and died to give us instead deliverance. And deliverance is better than defensiveness. And deliverance is better than deflection and deliverance is better than despair because deliverance comes when we embrace the fact that we have nothing to defend, right? We own what we've done and it comes when we say we have no one else to blame. I did it myself, but I need not lose hope because someone else has intervened on my behalf. Someone else has done what I was powerless to do. Someone else has taken on my imperfection and given me perfection. Someone else has taken on guilt and given me guiltlessness. Someone else has given his life so that I might have a new life. Church, here's what I want us to remember together this morning, that because Jesus has died for us, even when we've gone too far, we're never too far gone. Even when we've gone too far, we're never too far gone. Because Jesus went to the cross for you and for me, even when we've gone too far, we're never too far gone. No matter what we've done or what we've said or what decisions we've made or the paths taken, there's no need to defend, deflect, or despair anymore. 
And why can I say this with confidence? It's because the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To apply that to this morning's text, Christ showed his love to the religious leaders and Pilate and Judas in this, that while they were in the act of having him killed, he didn't resist but went to his death so that there might be an opportunity for everyone to say, there's nothing to defend and there's no one to blame, but I need not lose hope because there is one who is a deliverer. And that's the good news of the gospel church. That because of Christ's self-sacrificing death, because of his great love for you and for me, our defense can become surrender. And our deflection, it can become repentance. And our despair can be gladness because we don't have to do anything anymore. All these responses that caused us to work so hard to find someone to blame or work so hard to find data that defends ourselves, or drag down in the sadness of despair, all those actions that we take, we don't have to do them anymore because there's one who's a deliverer who offers another way, who says, place your trust in me and your confidence in me. Follow my path. Take my yoke because it's light and learn my ways. And there's a different way of living and being that doesn't have to take us down the same old deadly roads. So in our last few moments together this morning, we return to the question, what do you do when you've gone too far? What do you do? In church this morning, I just want to say simply that the responses of defend, deflect, despair, we can say goodbye to them. And this morning, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, we can all embrace afresh the good news of a deliverer who has come on our behalf and died for us so that we don't have to be a slave to three bad options, but instead can live in a new life where we own our guilt, own our sin, own the things we've done bad, own our thousand-mile road trips, right, but instead realize that they're covered by the blood at the cross, that there's new options for us, that we can surrender the past, embrace repentance, and find hope for the future in Christ. That's the message of the gospel. So would you pray with me? Gosh, Lord, these, these three responses, they're deep in us. Second nature, we're all natural defenders, deflectors, and despairs. But God, we need a different way. They're, they're bad options. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that however it looks for each of us, knowing that there's so many different places in our spiritual journey in this room, Lord, that you would meet us where we are and remind us of your delivering power. That you would remind us of your great love for us and the fact that we don't need to feel shame we don't need to feel guilt any longer, Lord, that you want to take those from us and instead give us new life and new hope. God, this is good news. May we embrace it afresh today. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.